How many of you came to faith through your family? All right. Big significant portion in, in the room. How many of you came to faith through someone, a stranger, who witnessed you? Or a friend? Or someone that's not in your family? Okay. And myself included in that. Um, I always try to fish that out because all of us have come to faith through someone, right? Whether it's through our family, a faithful teaching of our parents, or whether it's a stranger that reached out to us. This is a book that um, I was given when I came to faith. It's a young woman. Um, she was a missionary. She met me as I was a secular atheist hedonist in the drug world. And she persevered for a whole month sitting with us, and she shared the gospel with us. And she started this little book by writing on it all her favorite passages every single day, praying for me, trusting that the Lord will save me. And she gave this to me when I came to faith. Faithfulness in her witnessing to me was what drew me and broke down my barriers about Christians and opened up my heart to receive the gospel through God's Spirit eventually. The importance of that, to bring that out in the beginning, is to say that all of us have come to faith through someone speaking the word to us, whether it be your parents who are faithful in raising you up, and, or your pastor, or um, friends at the youth group, or a total stranger who met you on the street. God uses people to speak the word and to bring people to faith. This is why it's so important for us to understand how it is that we speak the gospel to people. My name is Monet, and I was once a secular atheist hedonist, and we were speaking together today about evangelizing the secular-minded people. We will break down some presuppositions about what secular-minded people are, but we will talk a little bit at the end of how we can put all of the material we've got together in order to engage in the secular-minded people. Herbert Schlossberg wrote this book called Idols for Destruction, which I recommended in the book of reading. If you just take your notes quickly by way of introduction, at the back of your notes, they'll have recommended reading on these identifying idols, engaging the culture, know the gospel. Very few books, very basic, very interesting. I thought they, all of these books are introductory, so they're very accessible. Um, and these are helpful books to um, engage some of the topics that we're speaking on that you can look at in your own time. One of those books is Herbert Schlossberg's uh, Idols for Destruction. And he said, our society is now described in such terms as post-capitalist, post-bourgeois, post-modern, post-collectivist, post-literary, post-civilized, post-traditional, post-historic, post-industrial, post-Puritan, post-Protestant, and post-Christian. And perhaps you can add, add that now in the last 20 years, post-gender. You know, this is our society that we live in. We are classified as the post-society. Those that go beyond, that come after, those that don't need the structures from before. People that are, you will engage with in the world today inherit this kind of thinking because they watch television or they've gone to university, they read books, they listen to music. Everything out there is geared towards shaping and making you think in a particular way. If you read, for example, the book that I've recommended in my outline here at the back, there's a book there by James K. Smith, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. He will call this the secular liturgies of our time. Everything in the world is geared towards making you think in a particular way. Everyone is promoting a message. What it is that you think about the world in which you live and about the Bible and about God all comes through these various conduits. They shape your thinking. And what you do when you come into the Sunday service when you read your Bibles, when you come to Bible studies, is you retrain your thinking to think according to what God says about the world. And that is what we have to do this morning when we consider the secular mind people. We have to retrain our thinking. We have to rethink ourselves. We have to reshape our thoughts. Because every single one of us have been engaged this week in listening to things, engaging with things, talking to people that make us think in a particular way. Is it what the Bible portrays us and how we should think? Or is the world shaping our thinking? Secular culture's view of humanity and the view of the Bible is vastly different. I've got three points there in your outline by way of introduction. 
mostly people in the secular world think too highly of humanity or too low of humanity. This is brought about by Martin Lloyd-Jones' excellent interview by Joan Bakewell, which is on YouTube, freely available. And I would urge you to go and listen to that YouTube interview. It was a great diagnosis of the secular mind, according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is one of the best talks I've seen on that subject itself. And Martin Lloyd-Jones simply said to Jane Blackwell, who was, um, of course, the great feminist of her time and a great interviewer, uh, a secular-minded person, that the secular world thinks to have humanity in the sense that we are like a divine spark, right? A pantheist, perhaps, that you have the divinity within you and uh, you have to loosen the shackles of the present flesh and you have to make one with your divine self. Or a too low view of humanity. We are just the evolved animal, just the rational animal, no different to anything else. We have come from everything else. We have no real purpose apart from progression. Now, the Bible describes man in almost in balance of these two, created in the image of God, which is a high view of humanity, but yet fallen into rebellion, which is why we see all the trouble that we have around us. So here we are, as rebe re we're rebels, that's what we are. The, the Bible has a very dark view of man's heart, the seat of passions, those things that make you desire things. Since the fall, the Bible describes our hearts as bent towards evil, Genesis 8 verse 21. Deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Hard and lifeless, Ezekiel 36 verse 26. Now, that's disturbing if you think about it. But if you consider your own heart and how quickly it wanders after things that are not of truth, of goodness, of value, you'll recognize that the Bible's diagnosis of man's heart is quite accurate. But what is a secular-minded person? And how does a secular-minded person think? Of course, we have the way in which we think, how they think about the world, evolutionary theory or pantheism. But we also have the way in which people behave. And this is the area that I would like to perhaps focus on in our introduction. There are three types of secular-minded people. And this can include even a person that goes to church. You see, we sometimes want to leave the secular-minded person outside of the church. But actually, a lot of people, though they confess God, live as if He is not there. <laughs> and this would include you in a secular-minded person. Perhaps someone in this room this morning would be living in such a way. So we have to consider three types of secular-minded people. The Declaration of Independence says this, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There you have the pursuit of every single human being. There is not a person in this room that is not pursuing happiness. Now, how we find happiness differs from person to person, dependent upon our view of reality, dependent upon how we think. The three types are the hedonist, the epicurean, and the stoic. The hedonist, for example, and I captured this by the quote from Freddie Mercury and Queen, I want it all, and I want it now, right? The person who lives for the present, the person who lives for pleasure, the person who has no thought about the future, but lives for everything right now. This was exactly how I was. I was someone who lived for pleasure. No care about the consequences, living for that moment, that present, living in it. The Epicurean, for example, the next person is someone that, and I captured this quote by Woody Allen, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Epicurean is someone who works hard in order to live well. Someone who staves off pain and suffering as long as possible. In fact, this is probably most of the people you'll meet in Washington, D.C. People that work hard. 
They save up for their retirement. They want to retire well. I don't know if you've ever read the book by John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life. He opens up with a newspaper article on that book and speaking of a couple who retire early in their 50s, travel the world on their large yacht, picking up seashells on exotic beaches and playing softball. <laughs> that kind of dream that we have, perhaps, you know, to, to live well as long as we can and not face any suffering, that's the Epicurean mind. That's generally most people that you would meet. Someone who just lives in order to get by as easily as possible. Could be a lot of people in the church, in fact. The moral person, the person that lives in order to have values that are upstanding in society, but yet behind it all is someone that lives for themselves. The Stoic. Now, this is from the book The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. Life is hard. And once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. The Stoic is a person who realizes that you cannot avoid suffering. You just have to accept it. You have to endure it. And the moment you learn the, the rules of engagement in suffering, you are able to transcend it and you can cope with it. Kind of an attitude that a soldier would have. You know, someone that goes to war and understands the difficulties and sufferings of war, that knows that we've got to get through this pain, grit and bear it, and work through it. That is how you overcome it. Perhaps your baby boomers were types like this, or those who came out of the post-Second World War that built the country once again. People that worked hard, knew they are going to suffer, lived poorly, in order to enjoy life. One common thread between all of these people is their view of God. People like this will all have some kind of a view of God. Some would be atheists, there is no God that exists. But I would say that a lot of people, in fact the majority of the world, has some view of God. Atheism is a very small percentage of the world in which we live. Most people would say that they believe in God. But what these pe characterizes these people is how they live in light of their view of God. You see, for we're going to encounter in our case study in Acts chapter 17, Paul's engagement with the Athenian philosophers. And there we'll see the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. And generally what characterized the view of the Epicureans and the Stoics and the Hedonists wasn't that there was no gods, but that the gods were distant. They didn't care about the human affairs, and therefore we had to make our own happiness. We had to pursue it for ourselves in the way that we see fit. See, that's the core of someone who's a secular-minded person. It could be someone even in church that has that kind of view. Sure, I believe in God, but I live as if He is entirely absent or disinterested in my present life. What are the ways in which we counter this kind of worldview? Well, there are three critiques of these groups that we can give by way of introduction before we get to our case study in Acts chapter 17. The cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. The cross critiques a Epicurean worldview in, this, in, this, in that saying that suffering will come. You will encounter suffering in your life. You can put it off as long as you want. But it will come. I have a friend who was saved in his retirement because of the confrontation with suffering. Worked hard, saved up, was going to retire well with his wife, retire early. She contracted cancer the year before they were to retire. Three years later, she was dead. The entire dreams of what they had in retirement, shattered. Loneliness crept in. Thankfully, someone in his family was a believer and drew him to the church and they found salvation in Christ. Suffering will come. How do you deal with it if you've been trying to avoid it for your entire life? The cross critiques us and points to the, the suffering of Jesus and says there is purpose in suffering. The resurrection critiques the Stoic worldview. 
that there is no purpose or end to suffering. No, the resurrection shows us that there is an end to suffering. In fact, an end into everlasting hope. The resurrection tells us that there will come a time in which we will be raised to a new life where there will be no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning. We will have everything as God has intended it. That's the hope of the Christian. Of course, the greatest hope is that we will have God Himself. He's ever-present. And there He is in our midst, calling us to Himself because He is interested in our affairs. And thirdly, the ascension critiques the hedonist. The hedonist who lives for himself, lives for pleasure, lives for the moment. The ascension tells us that there is a Lord who is seated upon a throne. And there he is, calling us to repentance. He's commanding us to not live for ourselves or the moment, but to live for eternity and to live for him. These are the three ways in which the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension can critique this worldview. Now, if you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, we'll be looking from verses 16 through to verse 34 at the case study that we have in Paul as he engages, engages with these secular-minded people in Athens. This is one of the best case studies we have in how someone interacts with the world and its systems and it will give us some helpful indications of how we can engage with the world and its systems over here. Now I have two points on Acts chapter 17, knowing the culture and presenting the gospel. We'll look at from verse 16 to 21 in knowing the culture. And John Calvin has famously said, Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We are created in the image of God and we are created with the capacity to worship. That is what humanity is. We are intended for a purpose. And so if we don't worship the one true God, we will worship something. We can't help it. That is why you have so many different religions in the world. It's interesting that Rabbi Zacharias was asked to speak from the, at the Freedom of Religion Society. These are the scientists, the atheists, the agnostics. They believe in science has given us the answer. And we don't need religion any longer. And as he was speaking, he looked around the room and he noticed something interesting. He said he's never been in a room more full of superstition than that room. Because people had pendants around their wrists or around their necks. And he had asked them afterwards what these were. And they were, well, well, you know, it's just for luck. The belief in luck? Is that really what science gives us? You see, the human heart desires to worship after something, to hold on to something that is mysterious. And if we don't hold on to the truth of what the Bible reveals, we will hold on to figments of our imagination. We'll create our own gods, as so many cultures have. And this is what Paul sees here in Athens. Take a look in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols it's interesting that Paul is here in Athens he is on his missionary journey he doesn't have Timothy or Silas with him and so he is by himself for the first time and perhaps if it were you and I especially if it were me I would say this is a nice break in Athens the most famous city in the world I can take a tour I can take some leisure maybe go and have a bath take some comfort some break from the ministry I'll be on furlough, right? <laughs> well, Paul himself is doing market research. He doesn't take a break, right? He's taking notes as he travels around the city. And it's interesting, this word for spirit was provoked, the English puts it so gently. <laughs> it's actually, very literally, what someone would have if they were having an epileptic seizure. It's a medical term. He was having fits of rage. As he's having a look at these idols, and can you think of his Jewish worldview? 
who has taught him about the one true God, that you shall make no image of him. Not in the likeness of the earth, in the heavens, or of man. And here, as he would reflect in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, are people that have made images of all sorts of various different things and calling these gods. Paul himself is provoked. I remember going on holiday in France and uh, traveling around at historic places. There's the Roman road, still in certain areas in France. Uh, you know, it's real history. I come from South Africa, which has recent history, like here. You go there and there's like real 2,000 years worth of history. Um, cathedrals that have been in existence since the 800s. And I remember going to one church that had been erected for a recent saint whose bones were still there. And you could get some time of purgatory, right? If you venerate his bones. A church erected for a mortal man. There's a problem in our hearts if that doesn't provoke us. You see, we can go, of course, to the great cathedrals of the world and look around and enjoy the sights and wonder at the art. But it should help us make us think as well about what this is saying about the God whom we worship. And what all those people that flock there think they are doing when they approach these idolatrous sites. Paul, for Paul, it provoked him. He was angered within himself because he realized here are image-bearing creatures that are being swayed away from the truth by beauty and art and skill imagination of man. What are the idols that we have in our city? Do you drive around Washington, D.C. and look at idols? I'm a tourist, right, when I come here. I'm from a foreign land, so I've got to speak very carefully because we have patriotic Americans, which is a good thing because you have a great country. This is why we're here. And your country benefits the whole world, which is a wonderful thing. But can we replace our God with our country? That's also dangerous. We'll have questions after, for the sake of recording. I see the new Roman Empire when I travel around. I see all of these beautiful statues that have been erected. It's quite fascinating the way I see the way the city has been built. But you see, it's not those images, but what's happening in the hearts of the people. What are the daily struggles that your people that you encounter face? I don't think there's anyone that you will face today that will perhaps bow down to any of the images in your city. But they're bowing down to something. Is it the ideological philosophies that have penetrated their worldview? What are those? And how do they stand in contrast to the Bible? There's a great book written by Herbert Schlossberg called Idols for Destruction. And you can look at that in the, my recommended reading. And I would encourage you to, to get hold of that because it speaks of the conflict of the Christian faith in the American culture. It's very eye-opening, written in the 70s and 80s, um, reprinted in the 90s. But it really gives you a perception of the contrasting worldviews that we have with that in Scripture. It's a really good, detailed book. What does Paul do next? Verses 17 to 18a, he engages with the culture. Right? This is what he does. Take a look at what he does over there. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who also converse with him. Notice what he does. He reasons daily in the synagogue and marketplace, i.e. in the sacred spaces and the safe places. That's what he does. He goes into the place where there's going to be confrontation. He risks it. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. If you've ever read the book of Acts, you'll know that Paul is very often beaten up. Sometimes he's worshipped as a god, and then when they find out that he's not one, they beat him and stone him and throw him outside of the city as though he's dead. He doesn't care about confrontation. He cares about the truth of who God is and what people are worshipping. I'm always struck with 
his reasoning daily. Reasoning here is a word used of someone that is using all of his logic in order to bring across a message that is understandable to his audience. So he's engaging in rhetoric, in speech, in argument. He wants to win his audience. He's purposeful. Where are there secular, sacred spaces and safe places in our city? Should we go to the local synagogue? <laughs> Is that what it's Paul referring to? Well, Paul went there because he was a Jew. And he reasoned with the devout persons there first. And then he went to the marketplace where the philosophers were. Great places in our time. And James K. Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, brings this out very well. The gym. You know, the workplace. The mall. The university. Your neighbor's house. Your house that you can bring people into. <laughs> Rosario Butterfield's new book on hospitality. The gospel comes with a house key. A great thought that is. That your house could be used for a place where people can hear the gospel. It's everywhere. Where you are going to be going and engaging and speaking to people. The airports. I love long flights. Because someone is stuck with me for six hours. <laughs> And there they are, and they can't move. Right? They can plug in the earphones, and they do do that, but they're going to take those earphones out at some point, and there I'm going to be smiling, waiting. So, <laughs> I always have great conversations on airplanes. The gym. I used to work in a mall back in South Africa, and lo and behold, I always started Bible studies in malls. But you'd be surprised how many people are willing to come to a Bible study once it's going. The university, safe space of note, right? <laughs> Tender consciences these days. Good place to go and speak where ideas are flourishing. If you have access. How are we using our time? Verses 18b to 20, we see that Paul knows the gospel. And in order to be reasoning with people, to present an argument, you have to know the gospel. Now, I don't have to rehash many of these things because uh, Ben's already spoken on them in the past, but we could point out some things that Paul engages with these people to overthrow their false perceptions of who God is. There he says in verse 18b, And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know this new teaching that is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners and lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. <laughs> I love that. You know, this is, this is the philosophical city of the world. And all they're doing is hearing and telling things that are new. Doesn't change their lives. They're just interested in knowledge. And acquiring thereof. Well, Paul, of course, is preaching foreign divinities. So he's saying something about God. They recognize that. And something strange and different. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection, which means it's going to be Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension. It's going to be all of that encompassed, summarized here in Jesus and the resurrection. And he's engaging with their ideas about who God is, with what the Bible says about what God is. And we can see this in his speech very clearly, from verses 22 onwards. Do you know the gospel? So important for you to know what it is. I don't know if you know about, I don't know if they still do this in the banks, but in South African Reserve Bank, if they want to teach someone how to know what a counterfeit note is. The person would, for his first few weeks of work, count notes. Real notes. All day long. Just count money. That's what they would do for weeks on end. And then they would throw, at some point, some fake notes in between stacks of real notes. They'd look exactly like the real thing. And they'd be counting that. Just pick it up. Feel it. Oh, this doesn't feel like a real note. 
that feel it by touch, that know the real notes so well. Can you feel wrong theology by touch, by sense, immediate? It's how well you've got to know what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. When a Mormon comes to you and says, I'm also a Christian, and he tells you what it is, do you go, oh, well, that sounds, that sounds intriguing. Or do you go, whoa, I sense. When a Roman Catholic, as you heard last time, I sense. Well, how about when the secular world is pressing upon you to give up these fables because science has given us the truth? How do you respond? Paul knows the gospel and he's able to share it publicly. Listen to Ben's talks on our role in God's role in evangelism and it's what if they don't believe the Bible on the podcast. Two excellent talks if you were here on that subject. Expect opposition, indifference, and interest. Definitely expect it. Verse 21. You see, here is they're going to spend all of their time in nothing except telling and hearing new things. And we're going to see at the end of the passage that there is opposition, there's indifference, and there's interest. Opposition, Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his masters. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Expect opposition. When you go out into the world and you engage very passionate people about what they believe, you've got to have at least a sober view of them that they honestly believe the things that they hold to. And if you're going to conf confront the ideologies and tell them that everything they've ever believed was totally wrong, you should expect someone to be upset about that. I was. I was really upset when someone came in and said to me, you know, you're living a lie. And that's all that Durkic said to me. I can't answer your questions, but I know that you're living a lie. And that was penetrating. Because I knew it. But yet I was upset about it. And I would say terrible things about her religion, about her, about her God. And she just kept on staying. Indifference is obviously the worst one you can encounter. Ah, that's for you, not for me, right? <laughs> there was indifference, and if the disciples were to encounter indifference, uh, Jesus said to them that if anyone will not listen or receive you, shake the, off the dust of your feet, and when you leave the house of town, I'm not saying you should do that, I'm just pointing out there's indifference in the Bible. These Athenians were indifferent at point. They just liked to hear new things. They didn't care what, if it was true or not. This is interesting. True for you is not true for me. I'm happy for that to be for you. No, the two cannot coexist. You see, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the Lord of the universe, if he asks us to repent and believe, that cannot coexist with someone that believes that there is no true existence after death. Or someone that believes that, well, this idol here is Lord. It cannot coexist. The Christian faith cannot coexist with other worldviews. It's either true or it's not. And so when you find indifference, you've got to probe that indifference. Ask them, do you think these two can coexist? Do you think this can be true and what you believe to be true? Probe indifference. Interest. This is the one we all want, right? When Peter preached his great Pentecost sermon, right at the end of that great sermon, this is what, what is recorded for us in, by Luke. Now when they heard this, that's the people here in Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That is the response we all want, right? Immediate reception. <laughs> I had a friend that I worked with, a colleague, um, and I came to faith. I went back to him. Uh, I was now a Christian, excited. Sh sat with him. I didn't even share the gospel. I was just sitting there. I couldn't sit still, you know. I was just, and they just said, you're different. What's wrong with you? I said, well, since you ask. <laughs> and I jumped right into it, and I talked about Jesus. And he's this big guy. Uh, I've seen him beat up four people. <laughs> you know, he's like, he's a big guy. 
and they just wept. And he was on his knees. And then I went away. I didn't tell them that they were living together, weren't married. I didn't tell them to live into, move into separate rooms. You know, I, was like, yeah. I came back like a few days later. They were living in separate rooms. I was like, hey, what's going on? No, we think this is wrong. Like, didn't grow up in a Christian household. Spirit convicted them. They should do things right. Got married just a month later. Joined the church. Still to this day, then not perfect Christians, but they're believers. They love the Lord. Reception, what we all want. So how do we get that reception? Well, we have to present the gospel, right? That's the next stage in Paul's engagement. Acts 17, verse 22 to 34. Paul says in Romans that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. We are dealing with people that are suppressing the truth, says the Bible. And passionately suppressing the truth. But nonetheless suppressing the truth. Whether they recognize it or not, they are suppressing the truth. And so the presenting the gospel, we have to learn from Paul, verses 22 to 23. We have to expose idols, right? See what Paul is doing there in verses 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. There's a little bit of irony there right, that Paul's using. He's, he's, he's pointing out their religi religious, religiosity, their incoherence. Think about this for a moment. If there is a one true God, do you think he would be satisfied with the worship of to an unknown God? All right, let's just get all of our bases covered here, right? I always like to joke and say, well, I was baptized as a Presbyterian. I was baptized as a Baptist. You know, I got all bases covered. Right? But that's how some people treat religion. Kind of like, hey, I'll give lip service to, to the God of Islam. I'll give lip service to the God of the Hindus. I'll give lip service. It doesn't matter. This is how a secular-minded person thinks. They don't necessarily deny God. But they're not going to offend any God out there either. You've got to recognize that and you've got to expose those tensions. What do these different gods say about, one, about themselves? And do they actually all say the same thing? I meet so many people in the world today that say, well, you know, all religions really practically come down to the same thing. That's what they say. And why do they say that? Because they say that because they want to draw the truth from every single religion and all of the virtues that you learn about it, love your neighbors, don't murder, all of these basic principles that each one extols or be kind to one another. He's saying that's really the essence of religion. And I always say that the differences matter. What do they say differently? Because those cannot coexist. Just because they have reflections of the truth doesn't mean that they have the substance of the truth. That's where you want to get to with someone like that. Because actually what they're doing is just living for pleasure or living for an easy life or just getting through suffering the best way they can see possible. But they're living for themselves. And you want to expose the inconsistent of the arguments. Paul engages the culture, verses 24 to 29. He does so really well on this passage here. I'm not going to go through the entire passage and reading it, but you can read verses 24 through to 29. I'm just going to point out some things that he does so well. Remember, these are temples that he's engaging with. People have made temples. He says in verse 24 that the true God does not live in temples made by men. Verse 25. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Verse 29. He is not an image found by the imagination and the art of a person. He can't be fashioned or created. 
These are all of the perceptions that these people have of the gods, right? The view that the Athenians had of the gods was that these gods needed beautiful temples to dwell in. Because if they didn't have a temple, they didn't have a house. <laughs> and in the home, they needed us to bring them food and drink and things like that. Because if we didn't do that, they would go hungry. And we also can't understand what they're like, so we have to fashion them in a shape of an image so they can indwell a body in order to be with us. These were the views of the gods in Athens. Paul exposes these false perceptions by telling them what the one true God is like. He's the one that gives to us life and breath in verse 25. See, we need Him. We are dependent upon Him. He doesn't need us. He created us all from one man. In the Athenian culture, that was blasphemous. Because the Athenians themselves were the perfect people. right? They didn't come from the same source as everyone else. Paul corrects the understanding of God and humanity. What are the false perceptions of God in our culture today? When you're speaking to someone, what do they believe about God? Have you ever asked someone that? Engage with them, ask them, what do you believe about God? Does it coincide with what the Bible teaches about who God is? And how can you use the Bible to break down those presuppositions? Some of these views out there, if he does exist, he's distant and unknowable. We can't know him. Or, if he does exist, he'll accept me just as I am, because he's a God of love. Or, he can't exist because there is so much suffering. False perceptions abound. Paul, next in verses 30 to 31, shares the gospel. You see, this is the key. After correcting the false perceptions of God, Paul moves to what this God demands from men. He commands all people everywhere to repent. You can't just leave the discussions in the abstract. There's an apologetic method today that likes to talk about God in the abstract. All I have to do is prove that there is such a being as a God. Bring people to theism. Apologetic methods like that abound. It, it's nice to be able to do that. Just talk about God in the abstract, right? Bring someone who doesn't believe about God to a place where they could perhaps see that there possibly is a God. A famous atheist, Anthony Flew, read uh, N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God, and he became a theist. Anthony Flew, and it was publicized, Anthony Flew, great atheist, finally becomes a theist. But he never became a Christian. What does it help him that he's a theist? He never repented of his sins and trusted in Christ. He never understood that there was a judgment coming and the only way of escape is the gospel. You see, that problem when we leave it in the abstract and just talk about in generalities about our faith and what it means for us and God, we need to bring it down to the gospel at some point. And that's what Paul does. This God who you misunderstood, this unknown God, what is he like? Well, he doesn't depend on us. We depend on him. What is he like? Well, he creates us all from one person, so you can't have any racial superiority. Creates our view of humanity. What is he like? Well, he commands us to repent. He demands that of us. You've got to know the gospel, and you've got to bring it down to this element here when you're engaging with people at some point. Now, it could take some time if you've got relationships with people. And what five minutes if you've got time at the airport? You've got to be able to distill the gospel in a very short form. The accuracy of that, who we are, where we come from, and what God demands of us. And you've got to be able to take some time to lay it out in its complexity. You've got to become a master in that which you believe. And finally, responding to opposition indifference and interest. How do Christians respond? Look at what happened to Paul at the Acts here. Some people mocked. Verse 32. 
there will be some people who will mock you for what you believe. And that's fine. <laughs> Bless those who curse you, says Jesus. Blessed are those and the Beatitudes that Jesus says, Blessed are those when people revile you, say all kinds of evil of you, because of my sake, rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. You have this greatest reward, you have the greatest message, you have the greatest hope, you have this greatest inheritance, you have everything. You know, it's like this, a guy who's just been called in by the Queen of England. And she says to him, I want to adopt you into my family. And this is a guy off the street. And he's like, what? I'm going to give you royal clothes, a royal single finger. I'm going to make you mine. You're going to be my family. Wow. What a great honor to bestow upon an ordinary person. And he walks out, gets to the tube on his way home. And some guy looks at him and says, ah, look at this guy. He's a nothing man. You know, what's he going to think? <laughs> well, <laughs> I belong to the royal family. This guy's nothing. Now, we don't think like that about people. But the reality is that you have this great inheritance. Who cares if people mock you? And they will mock you. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. Indifference. Others said to Paul here, we will hear you again about this. Now, that's terrible. Oh, that sounds great. We'll listen to you again at some point. Very intellectual. Like, kind of like, all right, I don't have to deal with this right now, but we'll listen to it some other time. Total indifference. Persist in prayer. Persist in reaching out. My friend, Durki, sat with us in opposition and much indifference in our group. And she persisted. She prayed every single day as she wrote this journal. She filled it out, putting the scriptures in here, praying these scriptures for me and for my friends. She persisted. She didn't give up. Persist in prayer. You can always counter someone with indifference with saying, hey, just help me understand why it is that you're not interested. What is it that you believe and you think it can be equal with this? Try and draw in a conversation just asking them a question to help you understand. Interest. But some men joined them and believed. Verse 34. That is the great. What are we to do when some people join and believe? Yes, someone's become a Christian. Now we just let them off to their own devices. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, make disciples, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Listen, friends, evangelism is hard work. Because if someone comes to faith, you're going to have to disciple them. That's going to take time. You don't just go out there and draw them in and introduce them to the church and off you go. You're responsible for walking with them. Now, if someone lives across the ocean, you met them on the plane, hey, you trust the Lord with that. And you tell them, get a hold of a good church, a gospel preaching church, right? Maybe give them a book if you have one. But if it's someone in your workplace or in your daily routine at your gym or in the grocery store, and they've come to faith, you're responsible to walk with them. So, recognize the time commitment. That is what we are called to do. Concluding thoughts. Your best weapon is an open door, says Rosario Butterfield. Your best weapon, the best place to disciple anyone is your house. Them seeing your life, drawing them in. Meeting them in coffee shops is great and you can disciple people there, but your home is where real discipleship often happens. The church, when you bring them here, is like your home. Engage with them on different fronts. How do we engage with the people out there? Questions to ask. Firstly, what type of person am I dealing with? Is this person living for themselves and pleasure? Is this person trying to save up for the great day and retire well, saving off all suffering? Does this person understand suffering but think there's nothing they can do about it so they just have to go through it like a fatalist perspective? In light of that, what are the primary idols that they're holding on to? What is it that they, gives them hope to persevere through? Perhaps the hope of a nice life in retirement. Perhaps the fact that they can do it, muster up all this strength, motivational speaking. Perhaps the perception that, hey, I'm just going to live as much as I can right now. My idol is myself. And I'm going to enjoy life as I can in the moment. 
All of these things will be taken away, says Ecclesiastes. They are nothing but a puff of wind. Expose the idols. How does one expose the idols? Seek and ask how the Bible confronts this perception. What does the Bible say about that? Ecclesiastes is a wonderful book to teach you what the Bible says. Study Ecclesiastes for secular-minded people. How does the Bible expose it and confront it? And then finally, how does he and she respond to the gospel? Is there anger? I like anger. I can carry on with that. Indifference? Probe. Dig into indifference. And someone who's perhaps receiving disciple. <laughs> Things to do. Be aware of your cultural surroundings by taking, talking to people about their interests and desires. Talk to your colleagues. Talk to people. Ask them what they're interested in. What do they do on holidays? What do they do on weekends? Be interested in people. Cultivate those relationships, those dynamics. Know the Bible, especially the Gospel. Know it, study it, read it daily, absorb it. Read books about it too. But know your Bible. Pray, pray, pray. <laughs> It is God who converts. You're just a conduit. So you pray in dependence. Like we raised people this morning, pray for them. If you took down notes, the names, pray for those people. As your fellow co-workers here on going out, pray for them. And fourthly, develop relationships with co-workers, neighbors, and people you encounter regularly. Bring them to your home. Go to their houses. Jesus met around meal table very frequently. 